Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and it is the last Friday of January, a month that a previous guest called the 13th month of 2020. Have we turned a corner? Only time will tell. Coming up today, I'm going to talk with Matteo Escarapor about his excellent satirical novel, Black Buck. Plus, you've probably heard a lot about GameStop this week. We're going to ask an expert if a video game store did, in fact, destroy capitalism. Uh, totally. Capitalism <laughs> is over. We're all free. Just like that. But first, we have our panel about the week that was. Our guests this week are soon-to-be former editor at WBEZ, Carrie Shepard. Carrie, hi. Hi, Greta. We also have WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith. Pat, hey. Hey, Greta. Okay, so I think other than GameStop, which is really a story that has like completely exploded this week, um, one that's been a big story and I think that will continue to be a big story for quite some time is about COVID vaccine distribution. Who's able to get it? Who isn't? How all of that is working? There are different rules in every state. It seems extremely convoluted and complicated. Um, Carrie, I know you're not directly editing a lot of vaccine stories for WBEZ, but just like due to like editorial osmosis, what's your sense about how things are going here in Chicago? Um, My sense is that there's still a lot of confusion Uh, about how and where to get the vaccine. I was thinking about this and actually asking uh, Becky Vivi, who is one of our colleagues, and she's the reporter who's sort of taking the lead on covering the vaccine distribution. And I was like, I has it hasn't even occurred to me to think about when I can get the vaccine, right. because yeah. I think probably like a lot of people my age, we're so focused on how our parents are going to get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been trying to like track down details about that. Like if my parents who actually live in a different county, not in Cook County, when and how they can get it, can they get it from their primary care physician? I asked Becky last night if we should, not my parents, but me and my partner should sign up for um, the vaccine. Should we try to get an appointment at our pharmacy? And she said, don't even bother. It's just not going to happen for a while. So my sense is there's confusion um, and a little concern. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it seems like across the U.S. I've heard so many stories about people who essentially if they want to get the vaccine at this point, they have to be they or their kids have to be very good at navigating what are inherently super complicated systems. You know, I can't tell you how many tweets I've seen, especially about like, you know, kids of immigrants who maybe aren't great English speakers who are relying on their children to like figure out how to get this thing so that they can finally feel like they're not super threatened every time they go outside you know yeah it just it strikes me as really and Greta credit to your home state of Alaska I believe they are like the best or second best in the country at at distributing the vaccine so far them in West Virginia which I I don't usually think of West Virginia as like the model of governing that's fascinating but uh 
it, it just seems like I'm not saying that there should only be one agency in charge of everything, but the fact that like there are so many agencies and private companies that all get a say in this, it just seems like idiotic. Like if the system was really complicated, but everybody knew like, yeah, there's one federal agency that you just go through them and you have to right. fill out the Here's info. the phone number. Here's yeah. the phone number. Here's the website. Instead, it's like, well, maybe you call Walgreens or maybe your doctor and the city might tell you or the state has a say DHS. in it. Yeah. It just seems like. And the other thing about it is like, you know, I, I don't think the U.S. is like one of the worst countries at distributing the vaccine I think we so are. far. I think we are. Are we? Uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I think that Israel is the highest I read yeah. at vaccine distribution, which mm. I find really interesting. But no, I think like the US and the UK are really low. And just like a quick follow, I mean, if this is not like symbolic of our healthcare system overall, the fact that you don't know if it's a federal number, a state number, a city number, a county number, you have no idea. You don't know if like the ones at Mariano's, your pharmacy or CVS are, are they real? Like we have to, of course, already, we already have to warn people about scams. Like I feel like that, yeah, US is is not tracking well on this, I must say. Well, and it was like our whole COVID plan. That's the other thing is, <laughs> right. is like, if some other countries are maybe, you know, at the same rate as us, at least maybe they had other plans. Whereas in the U.S., it was basically like, wait for the vaccine and that will solve everything. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, you know, hopefully eventually it will solve everything. But the fact that that the rollout has been so, uh, let's say, varied, at least, is like extra problematic. Yeah. Here, right. I think botched is also not an unreasonable word to use based on the coverage I've seen. So do y'all... Are you starting to have friends who have gotten it, at least in other places? I will say that has been really wonderful is to like hear from my, you know, social worker friend in Portland who's just got the second dose, you know, like that. It does feel really good to finally have people in my circle who are getting this thing, you know. My best friend is a clinical psychologist, and she actually asked um, asked me this week, she said she sort of run into a little bit of an ethical dilemma because... Mm -hmm. The vaccine is available to her, but she said, if I take it, am I taking it away from a essential frontline worker? Right. She had a back and forth of sort of like, well, you know, I can work out of my house, but like if anyone, if at any period in time, which I would argue is all the time, but especially now during a pandemic, you need your therapist. I was like, yeah. your your clients need you. You're serving a really essential purpose of healthcare and mental health care. So, but her dad is a doctor and like made her think that she shouldn't get it. So she felt really bad. Dad. And I said, but I don't know if it's, is it a one-to-one -one like that, right? Like, is it apples to apples in the sense that like, if right. I take it, does that mean the ER nurse isn't going to get it? I don't think right. it works like that. Perhaps that's yeah. naive, but um, I told her to go ahead and take it. Get that yeah, vaccine. I mean, we've only as a country have given out like 50 percent of the vaccine we've produced. I, I thought the things that I've read are like if you have a chance to get it, you should get it because the whole point is just we want everyone vaccinated and, and this isn't going efficiently. So keep I mean, the train moving kind of Yeah, like yeah, because it's just like the more important it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, of course, like we need people who are treating COVID. We need people in hospitals first. Course, but like what really matters is getting the vaccine in arm. So I think your friend should get it. And I also feel really lucky. Like my parents both 
have it now because they both work uh, in healthcare. Nice. And, uh, that's great. Nice. And so that's yeah, that was that was a really on uh, amazing day when when they got it. So another COVID related story, kind of kind of a little different, a little less serious. Uh, we are now ten months into massive shutdowns because of the pandemic. Which means that starting last month, we were able to get some pretty interesting data around childbirth rates. I think especially early on in the pandemic, a lot of people were like, oh, we're going to have a lot of COVID babies out there because <laughs> everybody's just shacked up inside. Um, NBC's reporting that very much was not the case. Essentially, they called it a baby bust, at least according to stats from December, which was nine months after March, right? Um I was, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious if that surprised either of you. I'm a very single human who has been living alone this entire time. I have no real context for this one. I was just curious what y'all thought. I purposely didn't read the article you sent (laughs) because I didn't want any sort of um, scientific news related reason for this. I just wanted to come up with my own reasons for this. Uh And I have a a couple of theories. Okay. A, when you're with your significant other, no matter how much you love them and how close you are um, all day, the last thing you want to do is have sex (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the day. Okay, that was my first. That was one theory. Okay, what's I'm just saying, I'm just saying hypothetically, hypothetically. Uh uh Right. Secondly, you know, there are no boundaries. Like our kitchen is our office, our... Bedroom becomes our office because you wake up and you're immediately, this is me at 6 a.m. Like I'm on Slack and I'm doing this Mm -hmm. and I'm doing this and Mm -hmm. I'm checking email. So I just think like that has made us a little bit, it does make us feel sometimes a little bit more like roommates or coworkers in some way. But Mm -hmm. also I'm just so damn tired, like extra tired every day (laughs) because you're working so much. There's no like... I got to get the bus. I got to leave at this time. I got to go home and separate my life from work. It just, it just keeps going. So you're just too tired. (laughs) I do feel like we need to distinguish between having sex and getting pregnant. You know, I mean, those, those can be two very different things, Carrie. uh, Yes, those are very different things. It's true. I would say I have heard from people like who the hell wants to bring a child into this world right now. But probably a big one is just like, I think having a kid can be so isolating, especially, you know, during that time of having a newborn, even under normal circumstances, let alone write the questions around like, how do you bring a child into this world that is just like so uncertain right now? I just think there's a lot of like pretty interesting questions. What did you think, Pat? I I don't know. I mean, if you were planning on having children, you'd be like, well, let's certainly wait till this pandemic is over before we start that process. <laughs> Especially the people that you know with children who uh, are like, oh, my God, this is a nightmare doing, yes, doing both true. these together. And, and then I do think the other thing is like uh, – I, I don't know who – I've seen it before. You know, like having a child is like a, a sign of hope. Like you're like, I want to have a kid because mm-hmm. I believe that they will have a good life and – and so, yeah, if this is if you're in a moment of of uncertainty and maybe depression, then like, why would that be your time to want to wanna have a child? Also, like, I don't know. I don't know the stats on this at all. But the accident babies of like people who just meet and hook up and don't use protection, I'd assume is way down. Right. Because that that's would just make not. Sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't that's know how a, often that happens. That's a good point. Tinder babies. <laughs> what yeah. did you yeah, call exactly. them? Tinder babies? Tinder babies. Oh, <laughs> 
I, I'd assume that's down too. I hope Tinder right? babies don't know they're called Tinder babies. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, I want to ask you two about GameStop because this is a super confusing story and it like has really blown up even over the last like 24 hours or whatever. We're going to unpack it later in the show. I guess I'm curious. uh, I don't I mean, have y'all decided to buy stock in GameStop? You can't even anymore. Like (laughs) really? uh, Yeah. It got to that point. Or at least not not through like the. Robin Hood or whatever. Robin Hood app that most people were using. I was so worried you were going to ask about this. Woke up and I said, really quick, Matt, can you explain GameStop to me? <laughs> Game Shop? It's Game super Stop. confusing. He and started I and probably... I said, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> stop. There are probably economists who will tell me I'm totally, not that anyone's going to reach out to me probably, but who would say that I'm totally wrong. To me, it seems awesome. Like the stock market feels like a rigged casino for, for rich people. Right, right. Uh, and so the fact that like, some plebes got together and and messed it all up and made themselves some money uh, seems incredible to me personally. <laughs> Patrick Smith, WBEZ criminal justice reporter, and Carrie Shepard, soon to be lead producer of a Chicago Daily News podcast called CityCast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Greta. Thanks for having us on. GameStop, what are you and why are you everywhere? We're going to explain that. But first, we're going to talk to the author of an excellent new novel that's somehow also related to sales and tech. That's coming up in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So there's a new book out that I just read, and I kind of can't get it out of my head, which seemed like the perfect reason to do a Nerdette segment. So here we are. It's called Black Buck, and it's about startup culture, yes, but it's also about ambition and success and what those things look like if you're not a white guy in America. It's part satire and part self-help, and at times it's intense. Our main character deals with some insane and absurd and, like, actually kind of also comic versions of racism. Here's a rough synopsis. We have Darren. He's a young black man who graduated at the top of his class in high school but never made it to college. Instead, he's living with his mom, and he's four years into working at a Starbucks. One morning, a tech CEO orders a coffee there, and Darren totally blows his mind. This white guy is convinced that Darren is going to be the best salesman in New York. So Darren tosses off his apron and ascends the high-rise to work at a startup. But he is the only black guy there, and some of his training sessions, like, feel like scenes from a frat house or get out. Like, not in, like, a super fun way. A lot of things happen after that, but I think 
that's enough to at least start this conversation. Black Buck is written by Matteo Ascarapor, who is here now. Matteo, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you for having me, Greta. So you've said that you didn't mean to write a satirical novel, but I think about all the things that happen in this story. You know, some of them, they're so absurd, they are kind of comic. They're also so intensely rooted in truth, which, I mean, is pretty much the definition of satire. So what happened? Yeah, I I was definitely intentional um, with putting some satirical elements in there, as well as a couple of absurdist elements. But in my mind, when I was writing it, I wasn't writing... um, a complete work of satire, right? right? Many people say, and and you may agree that the book takes on many different genres, sometimes mm-hmm. from page to page or chapter to chapter or part to part. Um, there are some instances of a comedy, of tragedy, and by the end, it turns into a thriller <laughs> of some sorts. <laughs> um, so, so when I set out to write it, I wanted it to be fun for sure, but I wanted to use humor as a way to cut the horror. And while I wanted a variety of people from all different backgrounds to be able to read the book and and have it resonate with them deeply, I had black and brown readers in in mind when I was initially writing it. Hmm. And I was saying, you know, as as a black reader myself, um, I don't need 400 pages of tragedy or doom and gloom right now either. So I didn't want to, you know, skate away from the reality um, of what goes on in these places in the world, but I didn't want it to just be dark, 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 you know, and by the end, you're like, what? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think as a white reader, too, like, there's something I think really meaningful about a book that can address some very serious issues and and do that head on, but also, you know, offer some comedic reprieve now and then, too. Mm, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I wanted it to be such a stark contrast sometimes um, between the hilarity and absurdity of a situation where mm-hmm. you are laughing on one page and then on the next, you, you're, st- you're not laughing anymore. And you're like, wait a second, was that actually as funny as I thought it was? Right. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were thinking about black and brown readers when you first started writing this book. Did that change over time? Like, Because I don't know, to a certain extent, I could see that this book would be really great for, say, like a white startup CEO or maybe even a black startup CEO. Yeah. So um, I think it's important to note that while I had black and brown readers and especially black readers in mind as I was writing this, I I knew that um, people from a variety of different backgrounds and walks of life would be able to take away things from it and and enjoy the read and also have the read spark real feeling and thought that hopefully leads to um, true allyship or or change in behavior or action in some small way. So it, it wasn't as though I was writing it and I was saying, you know, I hope none, none of these other non-black or brown readers read it. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't it. It was just me being sure. very conscious about the readers that I was speaking to, because I don't think it would be any stretch of the imagination, Greta, to say that um, F. Scott Fitzgerald didn't have me in mind when he wrote Tenders the Night. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think that's an unreasonable <laughs> statement at all, unfortunately. So you worked at a tech startup for several years before yeah. writing this book. How do you think your time there and that experience helped inspire what's in the book? I was working at a startup for around four years and there were definitely, you know, slights here and there and, and microaggressions. Um, but for me, especially due to the fact that I rose up so quickly, and I was a director of sales development, for a long time, I felt as though my power and status and the admiration of so many other people um, protected me 
right? Or made mm -hmm. me immune to many mm -hmm. things. And that just wasn't, that wasn't true, Greta. You know, now we have a term for it, the sunken place <laughs> um, mm -hmm. from get out. But, but mm -hmm. it just simply wasn't true. And I would be shocked back into it every once in a while. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I'm not just this director of sales development at this company in New York City. I'm a black director of sales development. Um, so, so it was important for me after I left that company to really think back on my experience there and then try to turn it into something that um, would be relatable and helpful to many others. So, yeah, I guess that's partly what I wonder is like how much when you were actually at the startup, were you encountering, you know, things that made you that reminded you that you were a black director of sales and like at what point? Did it ever happen during that experience where you're like, you know what, I'm going to need to make a book out of this because it is just too much, actually, you know, like, was that part of like a coping process for you almost? Or was it not until after you were done that you were like, you know, let's explore this a little? Yeah, the, there's a few things. One is that a lot of what Darren experiences in the workplace in terms of the bizarre absurd and overt racism mm -hmm. I've experienced outside of the workplace, especially when I was younger and where I grew up. Um, you know, being the only black kid on a, on a soccer team, things like that. So I translated those experiences into the workplace for Darren. And I did that on purpose because so many of us um, have these almost innocuous or mundane slights, and we can call them microaggressions. Right. But in the moment, it feels as though the world is splitting in half and you're about to fall in. Just like, wait a second, I was just talking to this person. Then all of a sudden they say something that is off. And I don't know, was it really off or is it in my head? And if I bring it up, then they're likely going to say, chill out. It's just a joke. Don't yeah. be so sensitive. So yeah. while I was at this company, I was just so embedded that there were times when I didn't realize what was going on. But then the times that did shock me, there definitely were to answer your question directly, Greta. Um, when I was like, whoa, whoa, this, oh, I forgot. Right. But then I would just forget again because because I had something else to do or, or I had a bunch of other people saying, Mateo, Mateo, we need you. We need your time, you know, or, or pick up this phone call or, you know, make this call. So um, it was very easy just to get caught up and lost. So after I left that that organization and it's important for me to say that there were a lot of pros while I was there. It wasn't sure. right. There were there were more pros than, than cons, at least for me, maybe not for everyone. But when I left, I didn't know who I was my identity was so wrapped up in, and you know, forgive me for using third person again, but Mateo, the employee, you know, sure. Mateo, the, the director of sales development, not Mateo, the human. So I had to figure out who I was afterwards. And it was a couple of years later that I said, you know what? I have been avoiding discussing things that um, have been important and salient in my own life, namely race, sales, and startups. And it's time, I believe, mm -hmm. to discuss them and discuss them articulately. And that's how Black Book came about. So uh, I feel like there are a number of different morals you could draw from this book. Um, I'm curious, like if there were one takeaway that you wanted someone to get from reading it, what that would be for you. It seemed to me reading it, and I don't want to give too much away, but I don't think this does it seems like a lot of what you want people to take away from this is the idea that allyship, that like that raising other people along with you on your climb doesn't cost you anything. Mm. Mm. You know, uh, I'm just sitting with that for a second because I had many aims um, and, and 
I don't really want to speak of it in terms of morals, sure. but yeah. that was one of my aims for sure to show that when you lift others up, your arms get stronger. Yeah. That you're right. It doesn't cost anything in the ways that people think it may, right? Like it does cost time and energy and effort, but it is not to your detriment to help other people, right? For so many of us, for myself included, that I am not opening doors in terms of this literary industry. The door has already been opened by people mm -hmm. who have come before me. But what I can do is make sure that it stays open. Instead of having my back turned to the people who want to enter, have my front turn and my hand extended towards them mm -hmm. saying, let me help you. But mm -hmm. um, that, that was one, you know, I wanted there to be some levity and to poke fun. And this sounds rare, but to poke fun at the absurdity of racism yeah. uh, while also not, not shying away from the fact that it's very real and dangerous. It's like when I look at those men who stormed the Capitol, mm -hmm. I'm like, yo, it looks like they just watched Braveheart <laughs> and, and they're just getting really riled up, you know, mm -hmm. and in some ways it's funny. But then at the same time, you're like, OK, this is dangerous um, for other readers, especially non-black readers. I wanted them to, to say, what role am I playing mm -hmm. in this specific story, but also the narrative of our nation? and in the world, and in the fight for progress. Well, thank you, Mateo, for writing such a funny and heartbreaking and just really thought-provoking story. I thought it was really gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you for reading it so, uh, so closely. I am by no means a financial expert, but there is a pretty crazy story this week that I am sure at this point you've come across. It has to do with GameStop, an old school video game store. If you're like Carrie, our panelist from earlier, this is one of those stories where you might have seen the headline. You might have even asked your partner about it or like tried to read the article and immediately you just kind of glaze over. Here is our attempt at explaining just how big a deal this is. So last year, a share of stock for this store called GameStop might go for like $3, which made sense because like many other brick and mortar places based mainly in malls during a pandemic, the future was not looking so bright. But then because of some pretty intense market manipulation, stock for GameStop skyrocketed. It jumped to 30 some dollars earlier this month. And at one point on Wednesday, it was worth more than $300 a share, all because some people on Reddit decided to mess with the market. So what actually happened and why could it have serious implications for the economy, you ask? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Alex Kirshner is. He wrote a story for Slate this week called What the Hell is Going On with GameStop's Stock? And he is here with us now. Alex, hey. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. So, so yeah, can you tell us about like what actually happened? Yeah, sure. So the, the basic background that sets this up is that in uh, the summer, actually really in the fall, a famous investor uh, named Ryan Cohen, who people might know as the founder of Chewy, which sells pet food online, oh, yeah. takes a really big stake in GameStop. Uh, the fact that he's invested gets people interested and makes it what some analysts have called a cult stock. Uh, sort of think Tesla and Elon Musk in this. Mm -hmm. And this causes like a 50% stock pop uh, in the middle of January. It goes from like 20 bucks to uh, the $30 range uh, just in, in a day. At that point, there are a lot of people, a lot of institutional investors, hedge fund types, 
who are uh, shorting this stock, who are betting that it's going to fail. And they have already borrowed shares of the stock with the goal that they will then sell the stock uh, at a high price, buy it back at a lower price after the stock has gone down, uh, and pocket that difference minus the fee to borrow the stock. A subreddit called uh, Wall Street Bets notices that this is a kind of massive short exposure for a lot of really wealthy investors, uh, including one, at least one significantly sized hedge fund. And they decide that they want to screw these hedge funders over. And they immediately, in droves, just begin buying the hell out of the stock, Hmm. which in turn juices the price. Hmm. Uh, And what happens is when these Redditors and this internet army begins to buy this stock, Uh, This is a significant problem for all of the hedge fund types and professional investors who are short on the stock because if that stock goes up, they could lose theoretically limitless money because they have to still buy this stock back in order to return it to the person they borrowed it from. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, now a massive uh, loss fest for those who were, were betting the stock would fall. They've lost billions of dollars. So can people just do this all the time? The thing is, I think maybe. Because it's not clear that there's any rule being broken, and it's not totally clear why this can't continue to happen and why it can't continue to happen in all kinds of fields. Huh. So as it often happens these days, I first came across this story completely out of context on Twitter. Uh, on Tuesday, Jessica Ellis asked if a video game store is about to end capitalism. What do you think? Did it? Uh, totally. <laughs> capitalism is over. Wow. We're all free. Just like that. Um. Yeah, I think that the video game store has done a better job than maybe anybody else this year accentuating how little of our model of capitalism makes intuitive sense. Hmm. They certainly exposed a lot of that. So I get that this is, I don't know, I think in some ways it's like a fascinating, like scrappy underdog story, taking down the man kind of a thing. Um, I don't know. Like, do you do you think there's a moral here? What do you think is the lesson we should be taking away from this? I think the lesson is that the internet is real life now in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. uh, I will be really curious to see exactly where this all ends and who winds up being helped, who winds up being hurt. Because on the one hand, I think that there's sort of a democratizing effect here, where it is great to see that amateurs, lay lay people on the internet can uh, have an impact on the market in a way that uh, a a corporate boardroom could have or that traders talking at their Bloomberg terminals could have. I don't think there's any reason why that shouldn't happen. Yeah, The thing that I'll be curious about at the end is uh, do teachers who have pension funds and those pension funds are invested with hedge funds. You know, there are real people who are not nearly that well off who might have their money with that hedge fund and uh, we'll see what the other market ripples are from this, if any. I I just think it's one of the most interesting stories of our time because of how many different parts of our society it will probably touch. Yeah, I think you're right. And I appreciate you helping explain it to me because I didn't quite get it. And I feel like I get it now. So Alex, I appreciate that. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's it for today. The show was produced by me along with Isabel Carter and Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week.
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.